0: Well we are in the second the second week of our series looking at the enemies of the soul the enemies of the soul. Do you remember last week if you were here we looked how Jesus tells us that we are not unopposed in following him. There are enemies of the soul. There's a headwind. Jesus categorizes these enemies and throughout the New Testament we see that these enemies are in three different categories. We call them the, word, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. These are the New Testament categories for what you may feel in your soul sometimes of this headwind against you following Jesus. We are inviting you to join us in this series with a companion book called Live No Lies by our friend John Mark Comer, who equally expands on these themes in his excellent book, Live No Lies. We invite you to Read that. But we started last week in looking at one of these enemies of the soul. And we chose, why not? Let's begin with the devil. Why not? And we looked at some of the issues around this creature or this force or this being called the devil. And this week we're going to look deeper into his strategies, his operations, the way he works. And As I've prepared this week, just a little insight into how I prepare my sermons. Sunday I preach and then Monday morning I get up, walk the dogs early in the morning and I'm normally chewing over what's coming up This Sunday, I'm starting my sermon prep Monday morning, very early, listening to the Bible, praying it through. Uh, I then listen to maybe some commentaries on that text, trying to make sure I'm faithful to the Bible in what I'm preaching on, maybe listen to some other things. So I'm percolating all week. And I normally get to the stage of Thursday when I'm in the office, and I write it all up and write the sermon, put it away for a couple of days as my day's off, Friday and Saturday, and then get up really early. You'll find me on Abbott Kinney around 6 a.m. when Intelligentsia opens. Uh, as I finish the sermon on Sunday morning. Well, this week was a bit different because I had the privilege of going with my second daughter to New York to look around a college to investigate that. And it meant my Thursday was out with her, and so I thought, it's all right, I'll write my sermon on the way back on Saturday night. You know, Alaska Airlines is, you know, New York to LA is about 23 hours, it feels like, and... (laughs) I'll just write my sermon. So I thought, you know what? And also Naomi wanted my daughter wanted a window, so there's a window. And I just thought, you know what? I can't be like writing a sermon like this with the guys, you know, seat coming back in front. So I paid a bit extra for that economy plus like four inches of heaven extra. I thought, I need that, I need to write my sermon. So I walked on the plane Naomi finds her seat and I see mine. It's the middle, but it's got those four inches of extra so I can do my sermon. And I sit down and there's a wonderful man on my right near the window, clearly uh, challenged with something. And so I got chatting a bit and lovely guy eating, uh, eating some Panda Express and really enjoying a chow mein. Uh, but then actually he said to me, he said to me, I, I do have some health issues, and I'm feeling claustrophobic. I went, like, is it me? Um, and he said, no, actually, I'm not too sure this is going to work out for me with someone next to me. I go, okay. Um, it's a full flight, and I'm thinking, I don't know how to solve this for you. And so I he, need he say, actually, no, this is a real big deal for me. I'm not too sure I can handle this. So I go, okay, so I pressed the buzzer, and the, uh, the steward came, and I said, look, this young man, um, I think he'd need an empty seat next to him, uh, and the steward said, look, no, you, you, this is your seat, and I went, no, you know what, I think, do you have any of the seats? And he went, well, not in this, you know, not in the four extra uh, inches zone, and I went, it's okay, just shove me wherever, I think he needs some extra space. So he went, well, would you have a middle seat on an exit aisle near the back? I went, OK. So I got up, passed my daughter, Naomi, who's going, what's going on? And I pass and I go back and sit down. And you could see that these two guys were there. And this is an empty middle seat. And you can see, right, they think the plane's full, the doors are locked, we've got an empty seat. This is awesome. You can see their disappointments. <laughs> As, you know, chubby Brit comes over just kind of nestles into the seat. <laughs> oh, you can see they're not impressed. So anyway, we, we take off. I pull down a little tray. I get up there, and I'm starting to write my sermon um, and trying to get it all down. And I'm writing a sermon on the devil. And I'm thinking, <laughs> this, yeah, this is going to be really interesting because they can see my screen right now. <laughs> and I'm writing a sermon. But then the guy next to me puts his screen up to watch a movie. So his big old MacBook, 15-incher, right there, literally next, we're touching screens. (laughs) And I'm writing, I'm intrigued, what movies are you going to watch, right? So I'm typing away on the strategies of the devil, who's the devil, what's the devil, and up comes the titles of the movie he's watching, and it says, The Conjuring. (laughs) I go, huh. This is interesting. How ironic! So I'm riding away on the strategy of the devil. Well, literally, two inches to my left, there's like a little a four-year-old toddler's head spinning around in an exorcism on this movie called The Conjuring. And I go, oh, "This is ironic, right now." Um, and so, so eventually, I thought, "Oh, this is too ironic." So I go, and he goes, "Yes." I go. You'll never guess the irony. <laughs> and he goes, what? He goes, I go, well, I'm writing a sermon. I'm writing, I'm writing on the devil, and you're watching The Conjuring. Which is, a, he looked at me weird, weirdly. He went, oh, yeah, great. Like, there you go, put his headphones back in. <laughs> and I just thought, you know what? Do you know sometimes the Lord just says, stop do what you're doing and have a chat. I thought, OK, have a chat. So I called, I thought, this is the best way to have a chat with someone, right? Press the buzzer. (laughs) The lady comes. And I take my earphones, and I go, I think these guys were really disappointed that I sat here. So I'd like to buy them some free drinks and some food. And they went, cool. (laughs) I'm Vance. And then Phil went, I'm Phil. And so for the next three hours, Vance and I and Phil and I had this great conversation. And they made, uh, Vance just texted to say he couldn't make it today. Is Phil here? I haven't heard from Phil yet. Phil may not be here. But um, (laughs) what was interesting, (laughs) so Vance and I then had a fascinating, and Phil, fascinating conversation about, you know, what is this devil thing? And what about truth? And what about? And I said, Look, I'm a pastor, so I'm, I'm not going to say anything. What I believe, I want to know what you guys believe. And for the next hour, well, the next three hours, much to the disappointment of everyone else on the plane, <laughs> we were having an intense, intense spiritual conversation about truth. Is there such a thing as truth? A higher power, and a conjuring, all this kind of stuff. But we got to the end of the flight, and literally, Vance just texted. I said, Mate, you know. We'd love to see you. Every time you're in town, Phil, just come say hi. So Vance texted me and said, mate, I can't make it today. But I know you're speaking on the devil. And I wish I could show it. Show me a GIF of like an evil clown laughing type thing. (laughs) It's amazing. It's not called a GIF, is it? What's it called? A GIF. I always do that to annoy my daughter. Um, So anyway, so who knows what this sermon's going to be like? But here we go. But we're not going to take our cues from the devil, from the conjuring. We're going to go to the teachings of Jesus. So you remember last week, Jesus said this in John chapter 8. He said to the re- religious leaders of the day, He said, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and holding to the truth, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, He speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. See, for Jesus, we looked last week what he believes about the devil. And Jesus believes, firstly, he's real, (laughs) there is a devil. And if you're wondering about, well, what kind of devil, what is that? Is that a creature? Is that an impersonal force? What is this force of evil that almost is personified? Well, we don't have time to go into it today. There are some books I'd recommend to you. There are some resources. I think they're up here. Live No Lies, John Mark Homer, the book, where kind of the companion book. The Bible Project website is fantastic on this. Screwtape Letters is fantastic on this. So do please uh, follow that. By the way, we have an issue with our projector. Um, it's not the devil. I think it's just a bulb. Um, so uh, he's real. Secondly... His end goal is destruction, is murder. Jesus said he's been a murderer from the beginning. A couple of chapters later in John chapter 10, he says the thief, another word for the devil, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's a pretty bad trifecta right there. And so what Jesus is saying is he destroys your life. He's come to take your joy away. So if you see him personified on Netflix as some kind of cool bartender who's having fun, that is actually part of the deception. He wants to steal away from your life. And then thirdly, his strategy is lies. His strategy is deception. Now, we, to, most often we, we think that when we think of the devil, we think of something like the conjuring. We think of some kind of scary moment of supernatural opposition. Now, I've been around long enough and maybe you have to know that there is an element of truth to that. There's some bits which are just no it's just a bulb. It's not the projector. The devil's not in the projector. You know, there are sometimes you know it's, no, I just think it's a bulb. Um but there are supernatural moments and you, you know we all know that can happen. But Jesus says his main strategy is not to scare you, it's to lie to you. Because actually lies have more destructive power than being scared. His strategy is lying because that has the power to destroy your life and this world. is when you believe lies. This is what John Mark Homer writes in his book, Live No Lies. He says, our war against the three enemies of the soul is not a war on guns and bombs. It's not against other people at all. It's a war on lies. And the problem is, less that we tell lies, and more that we live them. We let false narratives about reality into our bodies, and they wreak havoc in our souls. Here's my working theory. As followers of Jesus, we are at war with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the three enemies' stratagem is as follows. And he has this little diagram, which I think is very helpful. Deceptive ideas, lies from the enemy, that actually land on our disordered desires, which are then normalized in a sinful society the world, the devil, the flesh, and the world. All our three enemies are working together to see your life be stolen away. So this week we're going to look more at the strategy of the devil in these deceptive ideas. And to do that, we're going to go where Jesus points us to look for that. See, in John chapter 8, when Jesus says he's a murderer from the beginning and your father is this one who was at the beginning, he's pointing back to that story in Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, where Eve is deceived. And he's pointing to that as a paradigm of how he deceives. So we're going to look at that together. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 3 or it's going to be on the screen for you. Genesis chapter 3 begins in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you'll die. "'You won't die,' the serpent said to the woman. "'For God knows that when you eat from it, "'your eyes will be opened, "'and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. "'When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree "'was good for food and pleasing to the eye, "'and also desirable for gaining wisdom, "'she took some and ate it. "'She also gave some to her husband who was with her, "'and he ate it. "'Then the eyes of both of them were opened.' And they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Jesus points to this story as the paradigm of how we understand how the enemy deceives us. Now, if you're like me, you kind of pause and time out for a minute and go, hang on a minute, are we really talking about a a talking snake? Hang on a minute, time out. Is this really, is this true? Um, And just to say that that's a really good question. As we look at Genesis 3, I just want you to know that if you're struggling with going to this passage and thinking this is inspired by God because it sounds so crazy, um, that actually Christians throughout the whole history of Christianity have wrestled with how to interpret Genesis 1 through 3. And it's not a question of whether God can do miracles. Of course he can do miracles. Of God can do anything. Even if it sounds crazy, God can do anything. So it's not a matter of what can God do. This sounds like It's crazy. No, actually, throughout, scripture, throughout history, Christians have really boiled it down to one of two interpretations because it's such a difficult genre of literature to interpret. So just so you know, if you're here thinking, I'm not too sure how to interpret this, that's a really good question, and people have wrestled for centuries on that. Um, there's one school of thought which is literal history, and absolutely, God can do anything. And there's another school of thought of this genre sounds like it's an ancient Near East form of literature called mythology, but is a God-inspired kind of parable to teach us the truth of who we are, who God is, and how this world came to be the mess that it is in. So I'm not going to adjudicate between you on which way to interpret it. Christian-believing, Bible-believing, Orthodox Christians go in one of those directions. It's okay to go in those directions. But I want to say, either way, what this passage is telling us is the truth that is inspired by God to tell us who God is and who we are. And Jesus says how actually we can be deceived by the enemy. And the first thing we see is that this enemy is described as crafty, crafty. That I'm tempted to go, oh, man, I'm not going to fall for like the conjuring stuff. I'm not going to fall for the devil lying to me. But the word that is used is crafty or cunning or clever. And what we'll see is that we're all vulnerable to the enemy's lies because he does it very well. That the first step in spiritual warfare is realizing that you're vulnerable to his lies. So what we'll see, first of all, he's crafty because his lies are subtle. His lies are subtle. You see, he's subtle even in how he comes to Eve. He doesn't come as some kind of demonic gargoyle. He comes, it says, just like one of the animals in the garden. He's behind what seems to be just a normal piece of life. Eve's not on her guard going, you're the devil. No, no. It's the devil is using something that is normal in life to actually speak to Eve. It puts us straight on the guard of going, oh, hang on a minute. That actually something could look harmless, but it's being used by this enemy to lie to me. It could even be close to you. I mean, this is what Jesus found with the apostle Peter. Do you remember that amazing story? Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He says, I'm going to go to the cross. It's why I've come. I've come to actually take the sins of the world. I'm going to die. And Peter rebukes him. He says, no, mate, that's not, we don't follow people who kind of choose to die. And what does Jesus do? He says, get behind me, Satan. Not, he's not being rude to Peter. He's saying, I see you being influenced. On the surface, you look like Peter but you're being influenced right now, and I recognize that influence. I wonder if we recognize the influence of things in our life which seem neutral, but actually are feeding us lies. And his lies are also half-truths. They kind of have the ring of truth to them. He goes to Eve and says, look, Eve, did God really say that you can't eat from, that, from these trees? Well, he did say you can't eat for, from that tree. So, well, I don't think you'll die. I mean, come on, look how good it is. You'll die. If it was rotten, you'll die, sure. But look how good that fruit is. Look how amazing it is. God, God gave you all these things to enjoy, Right? I think, I think you got it wrong, or maybe God's just kind of had a bad day because that looks really good. What could be harmful? What could be wrong about that? Doesn't God want good things for you? Yeah, he does want good things for me. Doesn't, don't you want wisdom? Yeah, I do want wisdom. Well, if you eat it, you'll get wise. Huh. Maybe, wow, that's kind of, that, sounds, that sounds like God wants me to do that. You know, it's, Huh. It sounds loving. Therefore, if it's loving, it must be God. It's subtle. He'll draw us in through half-truths. He's not only subtle, but his lies... He's crafty because his lies are attractive. Right, His lies are attractive. They play on our disordered desires. See, he comes to Eve and he goes... Look, you want good food, right? You're a foodie like me. Don't you want good food? Look how amazing that food is. And don't you want wisdom? You want wisdom. You want power. You want actually these things. And suddenly we go, huh, these are the things that I'm wanting in my life. And he's giving me ways to get there. He's giving me opportunities to get there. And then finally, his lies matter. His lies matter. You know, the devil's not coming to you with lies that are irrelevant, right? He's not just coming with any old lies. He's coming with lies that if you believe them, they matter so much they will destroy your life. So theologians have seen that actually what the enemy is doing here with Eve, he's actually trying to undermine the most three powerful questions that you'll ever have to answer in your life. Who is God? Who am I? And what's the purpose of life? What's the way to happiness and joy in life? Who is God? Who am I? And what's the road to happiness in life? And see, those are the three questions that all of humanity, everywhere, and at all time have asked. And they, the answers to those questions will determine everything about your life. And in fact, they go in order. The first question, who is God, determines the second question, who are you? And then that determines the third question, which is, well, how do I make the most out of life? And we see straight away he attacks the first question with Eve. Who is God? You know, so Really? Is he a good God? I mean, if he's a good God, why did he say don't touch that amazing thing in the middle? It sounds like he's just a bit of a spoil sport, God. Sounds like he's not really about your best interests because he's withholding stuff from you. It sounds like God doesn't know best. Right? If he he knows best, well, that feels good, so what's wrong with it? Sounds like mm, he's not trustworthy. He's undermining God. Then he goes to Eve and says, huh, and actually, what's your role in all of this? He goes, you're not probably just some person who wants just to follow what God thinks. you know what? If you eat of that, he actually says, you could be like God. You could start to determine for yourself what's right and wrong, what is good and evil. And all of a sudden, he's deceiving Eve into thinking that she's not. A wonderful child of a benevolent father, and he's setting up the all of life to be to flourish with certain systems and ways that this, like any parent, this will bring life. And actually, don't do that, because that will probably hurt you. So, just like any parent sets up a system with like advice for his kids of going, look, this is good, but this is damaging. And all of a sudden the enemy goes, Look, what does he know? What does he know? Actually. Don't you want to be like God? Don't you want to reinterpret good and evil for yourself? Don't you want to actually determine what is right or whether it just feels right or looks good? Sounds awfully familiar to many folks I talk to in our amazing city here where it's like, actually, there's a bit of God in all of us. Where well, we all get to define what good or bad is or wrong or right or even what God is like because we are kind of, weaker. we are God's. We don't have to come under any other external authority. We are our own authority. And because he's undermined both of those two things in Eve and in our city and we'll find that pressure in our lives, then it comes to, well, what's the road to the good life? Is it God's way? Well, looks like Eve, he doesn't know what he's doing. Because that looks good and he said no. But actually, if you follow me, you get to decide what you want. And you get to make up your own way. And isn't that better? The road of the good life is to be in complete control, to define your own morality, to define your own identity to make up your own rules as you go along and not have anyone tell you what to do. In other words, you just be you and don't let anybody, not even God, give you any sense of truth. Whatever is your truth is enough. Do you recognize these lies today? Jesus said it's all the way back, still there. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3. These lies are there to undermine who God is, and who we are, and what is the road to happiness. The tragedy, of course, is as soon as she eats it, as soon as she goes, you know what, these lies have got so hold of me, they're causing me to reject God and go my own way, you start to see in one verse, verse 7, tragedy start to happen. And over the next few chapters, what God had warned, if you try and take over yourself, it's like a six-year-old behind the wheel of a car, it will not go well. And the devil walks away, job done. It wasn't a conjuring trick. It was just the power of a lie. And then finally, his lies are timely. His lies are timely. Have you noticed he's so crafty that he doesn't start his strategy on Eve until she's alone? He isolates before he lies Adam then joins her at the end of the story, but it's quite clear she's alone, to begin with, And it's because when we're alone, we're vulnerable. He isolates her away from God, He isolates her away from her community. He isolates her from anyone who can go, "Hang on a minute, time out, no, 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 no. no, no. We know the truth. She's vulnerable, and she's alone. I've been around in ministry long enough to know and you have in life long enough to know that whenever someone says, man, I've been on a road of destruction, I think I believe the lies and it is not working out for me. Actually, what I found is not life, I found death. And I go, when did it all start? And it absolutely always starts with the same place. Man, I was kind of, kind of left my church for a bit. Or... I didn't really have like, friends around me at the time. I kind of was in a new city or I was on the road or I kind of took a break from church for a bit. In other words, you were easy pickings because you were vulnerable. You were alone. I know in my life, horrible decisions happen when I believe lies, when I'm vulnerable and alone. I've never been in church, worshipping Jesus and succumb to the lie to do something terrible. It's when I'm alone that I'm vulnerable. His lies are timely and he will therefore do everything he can to isolate you. Which is why we feel a lot of, a lot of opposition sometimes in our city because we live in a city that isolates That we know that this city, we've been here long enough to know that it's actually quite a lonely city. We know, don't we, that it's a transient city, therefore friends come and go. And we find ourselves alone again. That we're busy so much and we're in traffic so much that it's hard to connect and meet up. You can't just drop into friends' homes. Many of us are freelancers and so we don't have regular people we work next to. The divorce rates are sky high, so you have all these people now isolated in one-bedroom apartment with Ikea furniture. (laughs) Smartphones completely mean that actually we kid ourselves that we don't need to get together. And on and on and on, this city before COVID, I love our city, there's nothing evil of our city itself but the enemy uses these things to isolate us and then guess what COVID comes along and now we're out of loving care for one another socially distancing and wearing masks then we've that we remote working from home and then we realize man if I'm remote working from home why am I paying five and a half thousand a month in rent when I can be in Deer Valley or Nashville or Austin, Texas. <laughs> Many go, I wish I could have stayed, but I lost my job when I had to leave. And then they go, oh man, taxes, why am I paying taxes? I could buy a house with a tax I save if I go to Nashville or Texas. Now this is real because what many of us are finding as we come out of COVID is we are more isolated than ever before. Our community has shrunk because of the last two years. We've lost friends. The divisions of politics means we've even fallen out with friends and family members. And even within our own community at Vintage, there are so many people who had to leave or chose to leave the city And there's so many wonderful new people coming, which we love. But for many, I've heard the last few months, people say, man, I was here for so long, it doesn't feel like my church anymore. My friends have gone. I don't know anyone. And I kind of want to honor that pain for a moment. I kind of want to honor that pain of saying goodbye to friends. Almost feeling left behind in church, in L.A. It's hard. It's hard when you go to your church and you feel alone. When you come in and go, I used to know everyone and now I'm sitting by myself. It's isolating. And I want to acknowledge that I'm very proud of you for still coming. I'm very just proud of your courage and your endurance to go, you know what, I'm not going to check out. Lizzie and I and our family lived in Geneva, Switzerland for about four years. And that's a very transient community, much more than here. And in the church we were at, there was a couple who we loved called Richard and Daphne Minchin. Richard and Daphne were long-termers in Geneva. They didn't work for the UN. They didn't work for the WHO. So they were long-termers. And in the church we were at, they said to us, wow, it's amazing. Every year we lose 80% of our congregation. There's only 20% of us who are here year in, year out. But do you know what they did? They didn't huddle into a 20%. And look at us, with kind of like, you'll be gone tomorrow. They took us into their homes, they took us into their hearts. We, they knew when they befriended our family that we were going to be gone soon. I was an expat, I wasn't going to stay. But they loved us, welcomed us. We had Sunday lunch together, and they took care of us. And I said to Richard one time, I said, Richard, how do you do it? It must be so hard in a community to see people come and go. How do you do it? Because you love us so well and you know we're going to go. He said, look, there's two things. He said, first of all, we do intentionally get together as like a 20% and we love each other and care for each other. There are moments when it's just us because we need each other. But he said, but also we know that we're not just called to huddle together as a 20%, we're called to invest in this 80%. We're called to love you guys. And we do love you. And in fact, actually when it gets wearying, we know that we are called to actually love you and invest in you and to serve you so much so that we know that you will leave and you know what? A bit of what we've done will leave with you. And our calling is through you to bless the world. So we don't see it as, woe is us. We see it as, what an opportunity to bless you, to love you, to serve you. And then you will go out to love and bless others. And do you know what? A few years ago, Richard had a heart attack and went to be with the Lord. And Lizzie and I happened to be in Europe, and we, we missed the funeral, but we went to see Daphne and touched base again with Daphne. And she said, Garrett yeah, it was amazing. At his funeral, there were people from around the world, messages from around the world of the influence, the impact Richard had had on them. Because he had decided not just to huddle, but to Give. And I want to encourage us in this moment. It is painful, isn't it, to regather and go, I don't know anyone, I'm on my fourth group of friends in seven years. It is hard. But I want to encourage us, yes, we need to gather together with people who are you know, we're long-termers, but also to gather together with new people and go, we want to love and invest. Because this is, a spring, this is the springboard to the whole world. And in reaching the nations, we don't need to go to the nations. We just go to our neighbors. And we want to love and include and welcome. But as we land the plane here, how do we then fight the enemy? How do we resist him? Jesus says, resist the enemy. Well, I'm not going to major on the first one, which you did last week, which is recognize the lies that are all around you. And make sure that you're feeding your mind and your soul with the truth. These lies don't come through a talking snake. They come through TV, billboards, commercials. This is how they come. So there's no neutral territory. And I just wanna encourage you to recognize, oh, hang on, this worldview of everything I'm watching, this worldview of everything I'm seeing, is a subtle lie to undermine who is God, who am I, and what truly is the way to human flourishing. But then finally, and I want to just dwell on this just for a couple of minutes, in this moment in time, our greatest spiritual warfare is community. It's a step out of isolation and into community is to find a group of people around you who love well, speak truth well, committed to each other well, can be your eyes when you don't spot the lies. And you can be that for one another. And so in this season, we're coming out of COVID, there's a lot of isolation in the room. There's nothing worse than being a stranger and lonely in a crowd, right? You're easy pickings. So I wanna encourage you to enter into spiritual warfare by getting involved in a community, being known in that community. If that's vintage, we want to do that. We've got groups, we've got teams, we've got courses you can go on, all because we don't want you to be alone and easy pickings for the lies of the enemy. You were created for community. I've, I've known this during COVID myself. Over half of pastors under the age of 45 in the last year were actively looking for other employment because it was lonely. Facing the COVID navigation, the political navigation, racial justice navigation. And as I phoned, called a friend of mine just to check in, I went, mate, how are you? He said, yeah, I'm in the car. I'm driving away from church. I don't think I'll ever go back. I've just seen two of my board members physically fight each other over our mask policy. I'm done. This is not woe is us. This is just, we've all been through the trauma, right, of the last few years. And I had been through a lot, and I was starting to feel it. And so I did. I called six of my buddies who I went through seminary with, who are now dotted all over the world in different churches. And I said, I don't know about you guys, but I need community. I need you guys to help me. I need you guys to be my eyes and ears and my encouragement because I feel so down right now. And so for the last year and a half, every other Tuesday, we will have a Zoom together. We'll Zoom in from around the world. One of them, is, the time zone is 7 a.m. One of them, it's 11.30 p.m. And that is an hour of truth in loving community. We'll speak truth to one another. We'll encourage each other. We'll pick each other up when we're down. We'll listen to each other's sermons so we can get on that Zoom call and go, do you know what, bro, that was a great sermon. Well done. We will love and encourage each other. And I can tell you, we're going to meet up in a few weeks. We thought, let's meet up. We haven't seen each other for a while. Let's meet up. And so we're going to meet and all we'll fly from wherever we are. And ironically, the, the, the most efficient place to meet for all of us is um, is Hawaii, and so <laughs> so we're all flying into Oahu in a few weeks, and i tell you what, do you know what's going to be on all of our lips when we see each other? We know this. It's a big hug, and I can tell you now it's going to be, if it wasn't for this group, I think the enemy would have devoured me. Who are the people in your life? Are you, What's the community you're fighting for when the enemy just wants to isolate you? That you go, I am not going to be isolated. I know the church is broken, but I'd rather that than being isolated. I'm going to get involved and we pu- be part of the family. I'm not going to let him take me down. Let's stand together.